This is Chevruta, Jewish Texts and Their Influence on Our Lives, a podcast by the San Diego Jewish Academy. I'm Ali Viterbi. And I'm Phil Grobart. Each month we bring in a guest to teach us their favorite piece of Jewish text. Today's text is Dr. Ray Fink. Uh, Dr. Fink is a local physician. Um, an uh, important Jewish lay leader in many Jewish organizations in San Diego, including um, my old synagogue, Bethel, the San Diego Jewish Academy, the Federation, many others. Uh, he's also been an active teacher, um, mostly with I Engage materials from the Shalom Hartman Institute um, at synagogues, federations, JCCs for adults, and also for high school students at the San Diego Jewish Academy. So it's our pleasure to introduce Dr. Ray Fink. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure. Um, so we'll just start by asking you a little bit about your life and what role has being Jewish played in your life or in what way has it been important to you? Um, my, my is just central to my being. I really never divorced my, I, my identity as a human being from my identity as a Jewish human being. It's just, it uh, it suffuses and infuses everything that I am and everything that I do. Uh, and I guess it's been that way ever since I've had an active memory, both as a child or as an adult. So I've really never been able to divorce the two. I, I've thought about it more recently because these issues come up in terms of what does Judaism mean to you or how do you express your Judaism in your life? And and I feel privileged in the sense that I really never had to actively look at that. It's, it's just part of my identity and part of my being. I wanted to ask you just about your role as being a leader. I mean, ever since I've known you, you've had some kind of leadership role in the Jewish community, kind of going from organization, different organizations. Um, so it really, it's a two-part question. One would be, um, what, what motivated you not just to be a, a deeply felt Jewish person in your home, even in your community, but also to, to become, to aspire to become and to become a leader. And um, how did you pick which organizations? Um, and, and maybe you could, it's a three part, but uh, you could talk a little bit about your current role as a, a board member for the Shalom Hartman Institute and what motivated you towards leadership in that, in that area. You know, I, I think that, none of these roles that I ever aspire to. I think most of the things I fell into and, um, and I fell into again, as part of my, my background and my upbringing, when we moved here to San Diego in 1984, our uh, only child at that time, Daniel was two and a half years old. And as someone who had grown up in a Jewish home, I understood that the two most important things that we needed to do in terms of moving to a new community was number one, finding a synagogue that we had to become members of to become integrated in a community. And then as Daniel became a little bit older to find a school for Daniel for Jewish education. And those weren't any thought process that were very complicated for both myself and for Rona because that's the community that we grew up in. It was, it was an automatic. And so our joining the synagogue 
Bethel, and then Daniel, and then subsequently our other children, Sarah and Miriam, having the education at the San Diego Jewish Academy, began our entry into Jewish life in, in San Diego. And, and I would say that none of the things that I ever did in any of those organizations ever occurred through some deliberate plan of after a certain number of years, I'd like to be doing this or that. They just evolved naturally. The Hartman Institute also in some ways evolved naturally, but through a, a different, um, through a different uh, way. When I was in my uh, early 40s, I was fortunate enough to be uh, chosen as a participant in the Wexner Institute uh, leadership program uh, here in San Diego, where we studied intensively for a number of years and, and that helped shape some of my leadership roles here in San Diego. And, um, and thereafter, as we started increasing our trips and, and spending more time in Israel, I happened to be walking by a building one day in the neighborhood that we were living in. And I saw this building called the Shalom Hartman Institute. And, and as it happened, I actually knew the founder uh, from his days in Montreal, and that was Rabbi yes. David Hartman. And I knew nothing about the Shalom Hartman Institute in those days, but fast forward quickly became to realize that this was an institute of serious Jewish study, uh, started attending some of the classes, and then spent a summer where I participated in one of the educational programs that was about 14, 15 years ago, and right away saw that this was uh, something that, uh, that attracted me both in terms of the uh, intellectual power and the ideas uh, and the non-judgmental way of teaching Judaism in a meaningful and, uh, and high level. And so that's, that's how the, the Hartman Institute piece uh, evolved. Okay. I wonder if you could speak briefly about what particularly about intensive Jewish study, tech study appeals to you. Was that something that you were accustomed to growing up or was that something you kind of fell into as well? As a child and, and learning um, Jewish studies in a, in a Jewish day school in Montreal, it was much more of the traditional way of, of looking at a text of, of Talmud and, and learning it as a child, one learns it in a particular way, in a particular lens, uh, which in my upbringing was fairly narrow because as a, as a child or a teenager, you have a fairly narrow view of the world. Um, but I, what, what particularly attracted me to, uh, to the, the study of text was the fact that uh, one had many voices and uh, each voice spoke to you at a different point in a different time and brought up different values. And I found it always extraordinary that whatever circumstance that you were living in at your life at any particular time, there was always some text that somehow 3000 years ago, someone had written and could address those issues. And, and I found that the more I dove into it, the more remarkable it was. Uh, and it also provided me, and I think provides all of us, 
um, with a way to to deepen our sense of connection to to Jewish life um, as far as the values of Jewish life and where it comes from and, and, and articulating it so well. So that's that's sort of the, the short answer. All right, that's a good segue. Well, yeah, you, you brought some serious Jewish text with you. So um, <laughs> you can share it if you like, and then Ali and I can see it. Um, the audience will be listening, um, but we'll also be able to put it on our website so, um, so people can see it. So um, whatever you're most comfortable with. Okay, so I think um, I think I'll just I'll read through the text. I think I emailed yeah. yeah. to you. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I thought a lot about what text I should bring forward today, both in terms of the the texts themselves and also the times that we're living in, uh, and and to get back to my attraction to Hartman. Uh, part of it has always been bringing. Jewish values and Jewish texts that are relevant to whatever the issues of the, of the day are. So th that's the reason that I, I chose those these two texts that we're going to embark on in a minute. What, what I've thought about is that if you look at one of the central prayers that we have in Judaism, of course, it's the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Hero Israel, the Lord is one God, the Lord is one. And so I've thought about the word Shema, to listen. And what I began to realize is that one can articulate a lot of the various values that we bring to our Jewish lives and kind of go through them. And, um, and we generally have a, a way of understanding them in a quick, snappy way. So for example, there's the value of peace, and one would say, well, I understand that. There's the concept of a rodef shalom, a pursuer of peace. That's a, a way of looking at that. We have a concept in Judaism of justice. Um, tzedek, 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 we just read it in this week's Torah portion, pursue, pursue justice. We have the concept of equality of all human beings, everyone being created, B'Tselem Elohim, in the image of God. And we also have the, the, the concept of exceptionalism, or lagoim, a light onto the nations. And so those are values that each one of us has looked at and studied and, and can hang on to as a central pillar. But in today's time, what about the value of listening? Like what is, is Shema just listening to the word of God or maybe is it also listening to each other? And um, and what I realized as well is that the easiest thing is to hear because it's a totally passive act. But the difference between hearing and listening is very different because hearing is just hearing voices that will either go in one ear, out the ear, echo, you're doing a whole bunch of things. But if you listen, that can change you as a person. So that's why I chose these two texts today, because they all have to do with the concept of listening and listening in a time of a complex world where we actually, we don't listen very well to each other. So the first text 
comes from the Babylonian Talmud, from Tractate Eruvim, and is familiar to, I'm sure, most people on this, on this call. But I wanted to look at it with a slightly different lens today. Rabbi Abba stated in the name of Shmuel, for three years there was a dispute between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. The former asserting the halakha is in agreement with our views, and the latter contending the halakha is in agreement with our views. So let's set the scene a little bit. Like what, what, is, what does this mean? What's, what's going on here? Who are these people? So firstly, let's understand that this is occurring at a time when Judaism is being completely redefined and reimagined post-destruction of the Second Temple. So there are no rules. And everybody is kind of figuring out for themselves, well, what are going to be the rules of this new Judaism that we're going to create? So Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel and, and the house of Shammai and the house of Hillel are not just two rabbis kind of sitting by themselves in a room trying to figure out um, the laws of Kashrut. But I think it's important for us to look at them as two major forces creating and shaping the dynamics of the Jewish world going forward with a lot of their followers. And with a lot of their followers, therefore, echoing their views and listening to them. And the disputes between the houses of Shammai and Hillel were very deep. And those houses were very polarized. Begins to sound a lot like what's going yeah. on in our country yeah. right now, isn't it? So we need to think about this text in that kind of setting. Two very important institutions with a lot of followers with views that were diametrically opposite democrats and republicans during a time of crisis too right facing crisis during a time of massive right. crisis where there are no set rules and we're reorganizing an entire society so that's the background and one is saying the halakha, meaning the way of the law, the way things are going to be, the law of the land, is according to me, Beit Hillel. And the other saying is, no, it's according to our views. So what does our Jewish text have to say about this? Like, what, what do they do? Do they go and they, they, they come together with some sort of agreement? Do they go to the Supreme Court? Like, what, what happens here? So the text then goes on. Then a bat kol was pronounced. Yatsa bat kol ve'amra. These and these are the words of the living God, and the law is according to Beit Hillel. So I've looked at this text many times before, and a couple of things sort of stood out to me this time. First of all, what is this bat kol, this daughter of a voice? this echo. What does that mean? It's actually the first time that I realized that it's in the feminine, which I found quite interesting too, that here you have these disputing groups of male rabbis. Oh, isn't it very interesting 
that what's going to come to resolve this dispute or to help resolve this dispute, it's actually a feminine voice. And it's a feminine voice that comes from above. The translation of Batkol is typically a divine voice. So a divine voice comes and says, enough with your arguments. You need to understand something this voice is saying, that there is actually something above your minor bickering. And in this case, it's a divine voice. It's the word of God. And actually, both of your discussions are my words, meaning God's words. And this divine voice is saying, the law is going to be according to Hillel. Okay. Is there any reason given why the law is according to Hillel? Are we now going to have a detailed text about all the reasons why the law is according to Hillel because Hillel was right on this argument and that argument and we can look at precedents? No. Let's read on what the text says. Since, however, both these and these are the words of the living God, what was it that entitled Bet Hillel to have the halakha fixed in agreement with their ruling? So one would expect, therefore, as I indicated a few seconds ago, that there would be this heavenly voice saying Bet Hillel was just smarter, got it right, echoed my divine bat kol. He got what I was trying to say. And I'm sorry, Bet Shammai, you just missed the boat. But it's interesting, our tradition doesn't say that at all. Doesn't say anything about who was right and who was wrong. What do they say? It goes on and it says, because they were kindly and modest, they studied their own rulings and those of Bet Shammai. Moreover, they placed Bet Shammai's words before their own. They honored their colleagues they showed kindness, they showed humility. It's incredible to think of this in today's environment where one would have two camps fighting with each other, schools fighting with each other, political parties fighting with each other, and one party saying, before I present my views, I'm gonna present the alternative argument and I'm gonna lay it out there. I'm gonna give the minority view on the Supreme Court and then I'll give the majority view. And because I've been humble and because I've been respectful and because I've been kind, that's what the tradition is going to take. Our nation is going to follow not the views of the ones who denigrate the other, but the ones who venerate the other. What an incredible way of looking at the world. And so I believe this text really speaks to us today so much more because it tells us, don't be too certain about your views. You can argue back and forth, but by the way, there's a voice up on top, this feminine voice who's kind of overseeing all your conversations and you think you're so smart. You're not so smart. 
there's another voice out there that has another idea. And I think that this is further expounded in the second text that I brought here today, which gives more detail and, and uh, texture to the uh, Elu v. Elu text. And we'll just read through it, and it's fairly self-explanatory. It's from the Babylonian Talmud Tractate Hagiga, 3b. These are the wise scholars who sit in various groups and occupy themselves with the study of Torah. There are those scholars who declare a thing ritually contaminated, and there are those who pronounce it clean, those who prohibit and those who permit, those who disqualify and those who declare fit. Perhaps a man will say, how can I ever learn Torah and understand it precisely when every issue is subject to debate and disagreement. At a very local level, you wanna know, do I send my children to school or don't send my children to school? Do I get vaccinated or don't get vaccinated? Do I build a wall or don't build a wall? Do I raise taxes or don't raise taxes? Who do I listen to? There's got to be a right or wrong answer to all these things. I know there's always a right or wrong answer. To allay this concern, scripture states that all the various rabbinic opinions are given from one shepherd. One God gave them. One leader proclaimed them from the mouth of the master of all matters. Blessed he, as it is written, and God spoke all these words. Hence, you too make your ear like a, a mill hopper, like a funnel, and acquire for yourself a discerning heart to hear intelligently the words of those who declare a thing impure and the words of those who pronounce it pure, the words of those who prohibit and the words of those who permit and the words of those who disqualify and the words of those who declare fit. God is not exhausted by one voice. Elu ve'elu divrei Elohim. Divrei Elohim, not devar Elohim. Many voices. Different voices resonate at a different time. At different points in our lives, we need to listen to a different voice. And there's not just one voice. God can't be exhausted by one voice of mortal human beings. God can handle multiple voices. God can handle multiple views. And the one to listen to is not just the loudest one in the room. So be modest, shma, truly listen, articulate someone else's message, listen to someone's message that you disagree with, and at least say to yourself, in that message that I totally disagree with, can I at least understand what value that person is bringing with that message? Because if God can accept multiple voices, shouldn't we? Wow, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah we're, uh, we're, we're sort of thank speechless you. here. Um, <laughs> There's a lot I could start with. I'm going to actually just start with it's the personal question. Um, part of what we're trying to do yeah. is see how these texts affect our personal lives in, in a deep sense. And, you know, I was just wondering if um, yeah. this was something that you 
intuitively followed without necessarily reading it in a text? Or, or did this text or texts like these, because there are several like these in Judaism, did they actually influence your own heart? Did, did you develop a more listening heart, like the text says, um, after studying these passages? Or do you think it spoke to you to something that was there? Or did, it sh- did something in you shift after coming into contact with, with teachings like these? And um, I, I say this I as someone that that's I've known be- you for, for a long time. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, think I've, I think I've become more sensitive a listener because of texts like these and because of the years that I've spent at Hartman. I don't think I was as sensitive a listener. I think I was more assured of my own ideas and um, less likely to truly listen to other viewpoints. And I guess part of that is often the fear that we have just as human beings that if we let someone else's ideas or voice come into our own thinking, somehow it diminishes us. And I think these texts over the years um, have actually have shaped me and I think have made me into a much better listener and a much more sensitive ability to to have a, an expanded view. It's hard though at times. Sure. It, it is difficult. It's, it's not an easy thing. It's very, very difficult. One often sort of retreats back uh, and, and you know, into your own position. I'm reminded of a, uh, of a fascinating uh, social science experiment that I listened to, uh, oh, must've been over a year ago on NPR. And it had to do with anti-vaxxers and the social science experiment was if you take people who ardently do not believe in vaccinating their children and then you take that group and you separate them out into two groups one you just let go on their way with their views and the other part what you do is you give them a detailed education on the science behind vaccination and why it's important for their children And then six months later, a few months later, you ask the question again, would your child, would you agree to have your child vaccinated? What's fascinating is that those who are given the scientific answers are much more affirmed in their position not to vaccinate. Hmm. Why? Because their entire ethos, their, their, their being has been made up in terms of, I am an anti-vaccinator person. And if you bring in science and you tell me that I'm wrong, it means that I'm wrong as a human being. And so I'll hold on to my position. And and so I, I, I use that as an example for so many things in the world around us today, right? Look at the political divisions in the country um, whatever your political views, you have someone who you see, you, 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 you view, you're told stories about an individual, and, and the more negative stories you're told about the individual, even though there's a part of you that says that this person is wrong, you hold on to it because you feel that your own identity right. is And there's bad. so much identity bound up 
in our world today, in our, in our views, in our ideologies, in the way we see the world. And I think then it becomes existential and very hard to listen when it threatens your sense of who you are. Yeah, that was beautifully put. Yeah. Do you remember when you first encountered this text? Either of these texts? Um, well, I know for a fact that I first encountered this. Well, I probably encountered a long time ago. But um, th at, at th this iteration of the text comes from one of my I Engage source mm -hmm. books that I have, which is Jewish Values and the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict. Mm -hmm. And this was an I Engage program through the Hartman Institute, I think about three or four years ago. And these two texts come up in the value section about the value of compromise. Yeah. And so in my introduction, when I talked about the values of, of peace or justice or self-preservation or equality or exceptionalism, you know, the value of compromise often seems like the most wishy-washy. Sure. Yeah. Right. I mean, compromise, I mean, you, you don't feel strongly enough about your own position to hold on to it. Well, what kind of person are you? Compromise in our Western world just seems like you're weak. You, you didn't articulate your position well. You, you, weren't, um, you weren't firm enough. Uh, it, 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 it evokes that sense of weakness. And what these texts tell us is no, it's actually a sense of strength. If you can integrate someone else's view and understand it and truly listen to it, that's strength. That's not weakness. You know, I um, one one question. It's, it's it's a complicated question, but I'll, I'll try to make it as simple as possible. But um, obviously, one would come back at this text and say, "But yes, there are boundaries." I mean, there there what what both of these texts are pushing at us is the authenticity, really the divine authenticity of opposing voices in the community. But then you're gonna come across voices that aren't just opposing, but which are obnoxious and, and, and <laughs> where we would characterize as a detriment to the community. So you have to learn somehow where to draw the line. And um, I, I'd like you maybe to comment on that because I, I, where we're at right now, but I don't think it's unique to right now, but where we're at yeah. is that uh, this idea that the other side isn't just a legitimate and authentic American voice. It's an anti-American voice. It's an undemocratic voice. It's, it's a voice that if we, if we give credence to it can be enormously destructive. Now, I may feel that deeply about that particular voice. Um, maybe I have a corrective in, in having studied this particular text, but, um, but even, you know, you and I that have studied these texts, you know, for a long time and have kind of inhaled them, internalized them. So, so how, how do you sort of thread that needle? Of, we, yes, there, there's divine authenticity to the different voices, but there's some voices which I can't give credence to. I can't listen to them. I, I have to fight them because there's so much at stake. The answer, the short answer is, I have no idea, <laughs> and I don't think any of us do. But the more, the more, the more complicated answer is, 
for me, in terms of these Venn diagrams of values, the one that sits out there as, as Jews that we always have to keep in mind is the value of self-preservation. And so the question to me then comes up is, are any of these other values, if they, if they reach out and compromise in a serious way, my self-preservation, then I can't listen to that to the same degree as I might some other voice. Now, the question is, how do you define your comfort level in terms of self-preservation? And, and can that be used in terms of a straw man to destroy other arguments? Of course it can. You can always get back to, well, it's an existential crisis and the self-preservation of the Jewish people and the state of Israel are at stake here and therefore da 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 da, da I can't listen to that. So, but that's the way I look at it. I, I, I try to look at different voices and I say, are these voices something that I can tolerate? Or are they really going to, uh, going to impact my, my identity and self-preservation as a Jew? And, and in this case, of course, as, as a strong Zionist. And what I, what I find is, is, and this sort of gets back to the, the question that you had asked earlier, as far as sort of my views maturing, I think that my default position a number of years ago would have been to automatically reject views much more quickly and say, well, no, you, you can't have that view because uh, it impacts on the self-preservation of the Jewish people. And then I realize, really, does it? Or am I just, is that just an easier answer? Is really the self-preservation of the Jewish people at stake? More often than not, it, it's not. Um, I think that, that we live at a different time um, with a, a, a strong or strong, two strong centers of Judaism in the world. And so I think our ability to tolerate deviance hmm. uh, is greater now than historically it has been, but that's that's a challenge. I'm so curious about this line between self-preservation and identity and how you, how do you personally like discriminate between those, right? Because we were talking about how it can be kind of harmful to uh, when your identity is so bound up in the way that you see the world. And yet there is this need, I think, that we all have for self-preservation, for maintaining one's own sense of the way that they see their world, the, the way that they see the world. And I'm curious, how can you hold this pluralism of ideas and listening with open ears while maintaining that sense of identity? I, I guess the, the reason, Ali, is that many of these so-called threats or existential threats, I don't view them as existential threats. Anti-Semitism is an existential threat. Anti-Zionism, the destruction of the state of Israel is an existential threat. Short of that, arguing different views. 
someone articulating an argument as an American Jew that they want to have a rich life without the state of Israel in their life? Is that an existential threat? No. Can I explain to them? Can I give them a reason why they need to do that? No. What I can tell them is what their life would look like if, for example, Israel was a part of it. And then that individual can decide whether he or she wants to have that part of the life. But I, I, don't, I don't view these things as existential threats to the Jewish people. Am I saddened by the fact that there may be some loss? I think I used to be. I don't <laughs> think so anymore. Um, and again, I think it comes from a view that this, this, this argument that, that we often have in the American Jewish community where this discussion is like, why be Jewish? I can give probably no reason why someone can be Jewish. Like, there's no answer to that. Why be Jewish? Why have a connection with the state of Israel? There's no why. But I can tell you what it looks like. I can tell you what it does, what it does for me, what it's done for my family, what my friendships are like, um, how I live my life, the value I get out of it, the richness I get out of it. I can, I can tell you the what, the why that's up to somebody else. And one would hope therefore that the what for people who are looking is inspirational enough. And, um, and I'm not threatened that much anymore by individuals at the periphery. I wanted to just, uh, we're coming to an end of this part, but um, let's see what you think about this. I, I, um, I'm wondering if the, they, they argue for three years, right? It's interesting. And so like, is three years a long time or is it a short time? <laughs> it, it, well, it's, it's a long time to be sitting around a table and and arguing like you like did they did they sleep there did they have bathroom breaks were they, they were they just arguing for three years and um and then does the bot call come because it's just such a long time and and even god is sick <laughs> of the arguing and just like stop already um but my sense is that uh the three years could be a short amount of time also i mean you know how how long i mean one presidency is four years and and you know you could say our current political crisis if you want to call it that has certainly been going on for more than three years um, so it's hard, hard for me to know whether the three years is, because it seems to be saying it takes some time before a kind of consensus develops and, and you figure out your primary value as a community and, and three years can be a long time for, for, and so be patient at the same time, three years, isn't a very long time, um, you know, in the scope of human history and American history and Israeli history at this point, um, so the text is making me think, when does it happen? When, when, when do we, and, and what, when and how do we develop this listening heart that allows us to create a culture that, that follows the precepts of Hillel, of humility, of listening? Yeah, um, and, and, and who's the but call yeah. in, in our world? I mean, there will be not, there will be no divine voice that's going to come and solve our divide in this country and around the world. Um, and maybe the but call in some way is the epidemic. Hmm. Maybe, 
maybe maybe an event that affects every human being regardless of his or her political views regardless of his or who his or her where they live in the world um somehow reminds every human being that you think you're safe you think you're rich you think you live in this luxurious home oh by the way you think that you can travel anywhere in the world and then this little strand of RNA comes and reminds everybody that's the bat call. You know what? You really can't. You're not that free. You're not that independent. You actually are dependent on each other. And I'm wondering whether this uh, sort of pandemic bat call, whether it will awaken us to integrate and uh, some of these different values. Um, I don't know. Um, time is going to tell both in this country and around the world. Um, but I, I think it requires some kind of major event uh, to change things. And let's see how things go. All right. Well, thanks very much. Uh, it was really interesting. Really learned a lot. Um, and uh, our first guest. Yeah, it's such a joy to spend, yeah. to start our <laughs> well, day this Thank way. you.